And we present now Gene Shepard. From this day in history, 1965, yes, 37 years ago, uh, plus uh, whatever the difference is between 5.15 a.m. and uh, 10.15 uh, p.m. when the show was originally broadcast, um, Gene Shepard, we'll talk about his being upstaged. That's the name of our program from April 9th, 1965. Without further ado, we slam close the door on the cassette. It's 5.15 precisely. You're tuned to listener-sponsored WBAI New York. Here's Gene Shepard. Smart guy. I'm ready. Put your shades on in there, Skip. Let's give them what for. Boy, other guys win the Academy Award, get on the cover of Time and Life. Shepard wins the Mug of the Month Award from a magazine that's given away free in barber shops. Bring out, I really did. Bring out a, uh, the Mug of the Month. <laughs> Somehow, I like that award better, you know? That's yeah, the only one I've got. I better like it. Bring it up. Shepard, your performance of After You've Gone is a work of art. Make it a regular part of your show. Fantastic. Nobody else is going to read endorsements of Shepard's work. Shepard will. Shepard, your performance of After You've Gone is a guess. Fantastic. We'll file that one. Will you please file that one? Promotion department. Shepard, please sing After You've Gone seven times tonight, especially on Friday. Uh, set it up in there when you skip After You've Gone. After You've Gone. And left me crying. After You've Gone. There's no denying. You'll feel blue. You'll feel sad. You'll miss the greatest man you ever had. Oh, oh, boy, there come a time. Why is it that on Saturday nights, which, of course, uh, we usually in this country begin about 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, there is always such a fantastic feeling of euphoria begins to build up. Now, for those of you people who like to play life very cool, uh, who do not like to get uh, deeply involved in the... The fruitcake of existence itself. I'm going to warn you. Be careful. Shepard is going tonight. Oh, after you've gone. Yes, sir. And left me crying. After you've gone. There's no denying.
like your tailor on and you'll kick your shoes off on you with great big battle tears that'll run down in your ears. But it's gonna be too late, baby. And you're gonna want me only, but it's gonna be too late. After you've gone, after you've gone away, and I flew the coop, and I'm on that great big U.S. Pennsylvania turnpike of life, flying down that long, long roadway with the wind blowing through my hair. subject of the Jews harp and to play a little bit of the Jews harp here and uh, I received through the mail a tape of a truly magnificent Jews harp player are you aware that the Jews harp is an instrument that that is uh, particularly and uh, almost uniquely um, fitted to people who have tin ears uh, the Jews harp is the only one note instrument <laughs> that, that, that truly has made it. And, and somebody sent me a magnificent tape that was made in India. Now, you, you got it all set up in there. This tape was made in India, and it is an Indian Jews harp player working at his instrument. Stay tuned. Bye, and then Sitaram Shatri. Listen to that, man. Isn't that fantastic? Holy smoke. Oh, listen to me. When you're in the presence of Roger Maris, you do not hit out fly balls. Fantastic. Listen to that. That's magic, really. 
uh, a peculiar kind of hell. I mean, when you're marching down the street, you got the Stars and Stripes set up there. When you're marching down the street with a spanking wind, you know, blowing in your direction, and you're carrying that big old B-flat con tube on your shoulder, and the band is blowing, and you're picking it up, you know, and you're saying, Stars and Stripes forever, Semper Fidesz, El Capitan, on the wall. We're marching, man. The head of you is that drum major spinning master. That beautiful twisting silver baton there. And the crowd is roaring and cheering. And then somebody throws a wet mitten into your bell. Somebody throws a quarter into your bell. You hear a ding, 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 ding. It comes flying down. Or a nickel or a penny. An eraser, you know, that kind of thing. Bring it up there. So after a while, you begin to have that sadness of the man to whom uh, the hot penny is a common and a very, very ordinary experience. Uh, speaking of common and ordinary experiences, uh, let's see. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> no, no, he's wrong. He is wrong. I, I have, I, no, he is wrong. That that guy is, is absolutely wrong. That is a, that is a, that is not a sitar. I'm sorry. Uh, because I have plenty of sitar records, and I know that that is not one of them. By the way, speaking of uh, being put on, this is WOR AM and FM New Yorkie. Hey, Skip, come on, let's go here. WOR AM and FM New Yorkie, and the money button is being pressed. Miller Highlights in Pop and Pour Cans. Distinctive Miller Highlight in Pop and Pour Cans. WBAI New York in Pop and Pour Cans. Just Pop and Pour Miller Highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. No opener needed. And inside every can, enjoy the hearty yet light goodness of Miller Highlight. Food from a century old recipe, only in Milwaukee. Miller Highlight always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Always a bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Now you can enjoy refreshing Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. Pop and Pour Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Now in Pop and Pour cans. Light up a can, you've got a good thing going. Good taste. Real, real mild. Good tobacco. Oh, so mellow. Vintage tobaccos. Flavor blended to the peak of enjoyment. And the Kent filter for extra good taste. Light up a Kent. You've got a good thing going. Kent is the one cigarette for everyone who smokes. Light up a Kent. You've got a good thing going. Light up a Kent. And I come running back from my uh, tobacco break to tell you that WBAI does not endorse these commercials. They're presented purely for nostalgic purposes, not to be taken internally. Let's see, we have with us Peugeot tonight. And uh, if you'd like to see the Peugeot, you can see it at uh, Manhattan Imported Motors, which is at 2 East 46th Street, right in the heart of Manhattan. 
And uh, the Peugeot, for your information, is a fine French automobile and is considered to be one of the better cars built anywhere in the world today. And, by the way, is obtainable in two models, the 403 and the 404. Two different price ranges, one around 2250 something like that, the other around 2650 something like that. And if you'd like to see the Peugeot, you can see it at the uh, International Automobile Show, which is currently swinging at the Coliseum, and also in an ad that I think is in the current New Yorker. You can find it somewhere. And uh, it's a fine car. I think you'll enjoy having it, and certainly you'll enjoy uh, test driving it. It's the Peugeot, the French Peugeot. And by the way, the oldest car still running in America today is an 1891 Peugeot. It is true he's having a little valve trouble, but nevertheless, uh, <laughs> it's the oldest one. It's the Peugeot. Okay? Now, let's see. Oh, um, oh about the, about the uh, limelight show. We uh, Every week, now look, let's get something very straight here. Every week, there are hundreds of people, or at least five people, who will call up during the week and say, Shepard, uh, you know, they, they leave messages and everything else here at the station for somehow for me to get them. Uh, reservations at the limelight. <laughs> I do not book the limelight. I just go down there and I do a show there every Saturday. And I have nothing to do with what table you get or if you don't get a table. I have nothing to do with that either. As far as I'm concerned, I would love to have all of you have a table. Uh, because I never get in. I, uh, three times already on, on three Saturdays, I didn't get in myself. I did the show from outside next door by the Pam Pam there. But... Uh, for those of you who have not visited the limelight, we'll be on the air tomorrow night, Saturday night, from that boat, uh, which is right down in the heart of the festering area of New York, known as Greenwich Village. Uh, what was the old phrase he used to say, only the hip, no Greenwich Village? No, that wasn't Thomas Wolf. Was that uh, Dorothy Kilgallen, I believe, said that? Uh, it's straight down 7th Avenue, 7th Avenue South, and we will be on the air if you can't get in. And if you'd like to get in, uh, well, give them a call. Maybe they'll have a reservation there available for you. That's the limelight, okay, tomorrow night? Oh, yes, and incidentally, we will be going on the air a little late tomorrow night. Uh, so if you tune in at 10 o'clock or 10.05 or something on WOR, and you hear a series of strange voices babbling some kind of nonsense... Uh, that will be, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but uh, it won't be me. I'll, I, I'm the strange voice that comes on later and babbles nonsense. Uh, you'll recognize me because I snort a lot. I'm the one that makes the banging sounds. Uh, so I come on <laughs> immediately after that scene, and if you have a reservation at the limelight, you better get down fairly early, like around, oh, 9.30, quarter to 10 tomorrow night. Okay? Fine. That's under control. Uh, getting back to this... Uh, sense of uh, defeat, uh, you know, uh, I, I think that most people today uh, spend a good deal of their time trying to get out of things, uh, trying to get out of contests where they are literally, uh, in other words, they're, they're compared with other people. Uh, I, I, do you know that, that one of the great terrors that I had in high school, and I'll have to, this comes as a kind of a peculiar admission, but... Uh, it was a terrible terror. I, I was signed up for what they call the General College Preparatory Course. Uh, now, I, I don't know how your high school works, but there are three or four different types of stuff you could take. You could take a business training type thing. Then they had what they call general, which, uh, you know, just is fooling around. 
Uh, <laughs> that's just ordinary high school. Then they had the, the general college prep, which involved taking uh, a language. You know, you had to take Latin. You had to take uh, stuff like algebra and trig and all that sort of stuff. And one course... You know that I came, what's the matter in there? Oh, trouble? All right, just watch me. One course practically made me almost change to something like general or business. And as I drew closer to it, it was a required course, I grew more and more terrified. It was a course in public speaking. I'm not kidding you. I'm telling you the truth. That, that it said, you know, you got this little book, the little handbook, you know, that said, uh, that said the required subjects that you had to take. And uh, English, oh, you know, I could, uh, English, uh, okay, you know, I'd fool around in English. And I'd, I'd, uh, I'd uh, decline verbs, you know, and I'd, once in a while, I'd uh, diagram sentences, and I'd hand in themes. I was very great on book reports. I could ad-lib a book report, I'll tell you, give me one paragraph of a book, any book, and I could write you a seven-page book report on it. That carried weight and got a B plus. I, in fact, I, I'll tell you something real secret. I had a little side business going at one point in my junior year. I used to charge a dollar a book report, and I uh, I used to make upwards of oh, a dollar and a half a year at this. You know, <laughs> kind of seeing. But there was one course that that absolutely terrified me, and I remember the teacher that taught it, Miss Parsons, Miss Bonita Parsons. Miss Parsons taught a course called public speaking. And you had to take it before you were a senior. You could take it any one of the first three years. You could take it as a freshman or as a as a sophomore or as a junior. And and, and I, I put it off. In the first year I says, nah, nah I'll I'll take uh, biology instead. I'll uh, study about worms and stuff. And uh, I'll also take uh, swimming. That's what I'll take. I'll put that off. So the next year I am now a sophomore. And the uh, there it was. Miss uh, Snyder says, uh, when are you going to take? She was my advisor. Miss Snyder says, when are you going to take public speaking? I said, well, uh, I think maybe next semester. Maybe I'll wait until next year or something like that. I'll take instead band. That's what I'll take. I'll take band. Oh, I was scared. It was approaching. It was approaching. And every couple of days, I would walk down through the hall. It was on the second floor. And I would see the classroom where they taught public speaking. And on that classroom floor, it was the only classroom that had it, there was a stage, a little platform-like, a little stage, and with a lectern. And I would, I would never see it with people in there. I'd just see it empty or kids coming out. But I saw that platform, and I'd see that, that little stage, and I, I'd get that sick feeling down the pit of my stomach. And then every couple of weeks, we'd have an auditorium session, and some kid would get up and give a talk along with the regular auditorium session. There'd be the president of the student council or something. And I'd sit way back in the back there and watch him and wonder how the devil this kid did it. You know, I'd say, oh, boy, he must be scared. Oh, wow. Oh, man. And, of course, I always put it down like all the rest of the kids. Ah, who wants to get up there and talk in front of Ah, shut up. You know, ah, boy, who is he? And each one of us had this sense of inadequacy of the kid who could get up and talk in front of other kids. And then it happened. My junior year came. And I had to sign up for public speaking. Had to, it was either that or I had to transfer to something like a general klutz course.
courses, you know, take, take typing and shorthand and all that, you know. And, and I wanted to go to college and all that. I had to take this. And, and I, I realize now the peculiar wisdom of the people who made up that course, that curriculum. I realize it now, but at the time it seemed like one of the most ridiculous things in the world to take. Why, why do you, public speaking, I should be studying Latin or I should be studying important, you know. I didn't want to take Latin either. And so, and so I had to sign up for that thing, and I'll never forget that fantastic day. The first day in public speaking course. And all of us are in there, and there's always about nine real smart you-know-whats. There's always about nine kids who dig this kind of stuff. You're bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, the future salesman of America, you know, that, that snotty kind. And the, the minute Miss Parsons got up and said, and she was one of these very stony-faced teachers, no emotion at all. A very peculiar teacher to teach public speaking. She talked out of thin lips, and she had kind of iron gray hair and rimless glasses. And Miss Parsons is sitting. She says, "Now, the first thing we'll do is I want all of you uh, to think for a minute or two, and uh, I want you to then come up and tell what you think you'd like to be when you grow up." Now, don't worry about it. It's not important what you're going to be. We just want you to get up on the platform here. And I will time you, and I will want you to speak for a minimum of one minute and a maximum of two minutes. And when you're through, I'll let you know. All right, now let's start up here in the front now. Let's think about this for a half a minute or so, and then we'll start up here in the front with Andrews. All right? Silence. I could hear the birds outside. And I could hear the streetcars, and I could hear the buses. And somewhere I could hear kids playing on a playground. Life was going on. People were happy. And in room 201, Gene Shepard was slowly shriveling up inside to a little rotten, curled-up, wormy walnut. Inside. And outwardly, you know, I was sitting there like all the rest of the kids, sweating, sort of vaguely looking preoccupied and, and peering around. And, and I could see in the, in the group a half-dozen kids who were just aching to get up there. You could just see it, you know, Oh, boy. You know, that excitement. That the kid that's always waving his hand in the class. That, that the girl who's always there in the front doing stuff on the board. You know, that, that type. The girl who's always running for the class president and the one who's always in the play. I'm sitting there. Oh, boy. And it was one of the very few times that I thanked my lucky stars. I thanked the gods above that my name started with an S. An S. And we only, I keep one eye on the clock, you know, look at the clock there. It's only 45 minutes now, 45 minutes. Oh, boy, please, please. And then finally she says, all right now, all right, all set, let's go. All right now, Andrews, first, get up and uh, tell us what you'd like to be. And uh, I'll tap when you're through. All right now, and I don't want any applause and I don't want any talking in the classroom uh, between discussions here. All right, all right, go ahead, Andrews. Well, this kid got up there on the stage. You could see he was walking on wooden legs. You could hear clank, clank, clank. It was another shepherd getting up there, you know. And you could see his pimples popping, you know, and his eyes were spinning in opposite. He got up there and he says, uh, uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm gonna be, uh, uh, my dad is a lawyer and, uh, um, uh, I'm, gonna be a lawyer and uh my dad says that uh, uh how much more time huh, my dad said 
Well, it just went on and on. It was like this guy was blowing bubbles underwater with a stopped-up bubble pipe. He was really, you know, I could just see him. And all the while, of course, I'm trying to concentrate on what I'm going to say. I'm trying to concentrate. Well, what am I going to be? What am I going to be? I'm like, what, am I, what am I going to be? You know, what I, I had no idea what I was going to be. You know, I'm going to just be a guy. I'm walking around. I'm a scratch, you know, and I'm, I'm going to stand on the street corner. And I guess I'll ride the, the bus when I grow up and I'll eat sandwiches and I'll go down to the hamburger joint and I'll, I'll have uh, cheeseburgers when I grow up and I'll uh, eat a lot of baby with candy bars because when I'm growing up, I'll figure I need all that stuff. <laughs> and the next one is a girl. She got up and, you know, she's like a bird. You know, Eileen Akers. I will never forget Eileen Akers. Eileen Akers was a kind of a fragile girl of the, of the Betty Davis school. She was hyperthyroid. Her eyes bulged out, you know, that kind of girl. And she had one of these fluting voices. And she got up there and so help me, she did not touch the ground. For two minutes, she hovered above us. You could hear the fluttering of wings. And she's going to be an artist. I am going to be an artist. I'm going to go to the University of Chicago Museum School. And I'm going to study all the great artists of the past. And I'm going to... And you could just hear violins playing. You could hear playing behind her. You could hear the sound. You could hear the sound of, of uh, a kind of mysterious kind of music playing. And we're sitting there mesmerized. It was the first time this chick had ever opened her mouth. And I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to be, I'm going to be so beautiful. And I'm going to, I'm going to paint great pictures. And I'm going to. And here she is with her big, thick glasses, sort of fluttering above us. And, and Miss Parsons is transfixed, just transfixed. Two minutes, and she sits down. She slowly volplane. She does a slow barrel roll and sits down. And one by one, the kids got up. And I'm watching the clock. Oh, I'm watching the clock. And I'm getting scared. I'm getting scared. I, I, it's getting closer and closer and closer. Now we have about seven minutes, and we're down around the R's. We're down around the R's. Old Raleigh gets up. Quentin Raleigh. Well, Quentin Raleigh, for years, had been my kind of twin nemesis. Quentin Raleigh was... You know, have you ever... Do you remember when you were in school, there was always one kid who always vaguely was your rival in a lot of things. He beat you out for little things, and he was always kind of topping you. Quentin Raleigh had topped me ever since I was in third grade. And Quentin Raleigh always meant another thing, that immediately after Quentin Raleigh comes Shepard. That's just the way all... <laughs> I knew, you know, so it was just like calling on me. So she calls on Quentin Raleigh, and Quentin Raleigh gets up there, and he starts to talk. Well, he had a little vague uh, speech problem, Quentin did. He stuttered. And Quentin gets up there, and he... Quentin was off. Well, Quentin went out for about five minutes, and she, you know, she couldn't stop him because he hadn't said anything for the first five minutes. And finally, she got him off, and he came sitting down. And guess whose turn it was? You are looking at it right here. Well, I couldn't believe it. The clock said it was time for the period to be over. And I was walking up to the front. My feet are going clank, 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 clank. Up on the stage, I kicked the little platform and I belted across the ankles, you know, and I get up there and I look down. It was the first time I ever looked down on a crowd and they were waiting to hear what I had to say. And they're all sitting there with that snotty look of people who have been through it. 
they've all been up there, you know, and I'm way down at the S's, and there's Shepard up there. I start to talk. I said, I have no idea what I said. I just went, I, I, I. It was somehow as though somebody had taken my mind out of my head, just like a nut pick. They had taken it out and they put it over among the geranium someplace. And they had attached my, my voice to the wastebasket. And my mouth was somewhere down around the bottom of the desk going quack, 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 quack. And there was this thing standing up there, just standing on two feet, you know. Going, I, I, and it was as though I was controlling everything from a distance with strings. My mind was over in the geraniums on the windowsill. My, my mouth was hooked out of the wastebasket. And the controls were very, very creaky, by the way. I, they, they, I couldn't make the contact. Ah, the bell. Boing! My mind snapped back to attention just like that. My head goes back on my shoulders. Whoop! I'm gone. Like that. Out in that hallway, I was gone. Well, I can't, I cannot tell you what hell the rest of the semester was in that class. Every last day, it never got better. It got worse. And for one entire semester, I kept saying, it's like typing. It's like the time I took typing and I was with a large, a large group of little round fat girls, all of whom could type 87 words a minute at birth. <laughs> and I'm going, gunk, gunk, gunk. And my hands are made of big fat salamis. Gunk, gunk, gunk. <laughs> Well, listen, I, 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 I can only tell you, if you want to bring the roses to your cheeks, friends, put yourself in competition. And especially if you find that you are beginning to win. I have this friend who thought she was the world's greatest Scrabble player until she met a Scrabble player who took her apart, put her back together again, took her apart again, then made coleslaw out of her, and then marinated her. And said, <laughs> that's a terrible feeling. Well, I am a kid now. You got the scene. I'm in high school. And I'm absolutely the ace of the bass section of our band. I am, I am literally the, the, the first chair bass man. And that is a great feeling. For the years I have worked my way up, I started in eighth grade playing the E flat tuba. And the tuba itself is a kind of, uh, is a kind of challenge. It's a heavy instrument. You get so that you love the tuba. Are you aware that you get so that you actually have a physical love for your instrument, your tuba? Yeah, you sit there and you pat it. You talk to it. Uh, uh, listen, I have, I have many the time. I have come into the band room, and so, uh, like, like Raleigh or uh, Reg Rose, a guy that was in the, in the bass section. I saw him one time weeping, sitting there talking to his B-flat sousaphone, weeping and crying. And the sousaphone was crying back. So you get you get deeply involved with this instrument, and you begin it begins to sort of become an extension of you. And after a while, you think of yourself as a sousaphone player. Now at first you're not, you know, you feel like a phony, and then you begin to learn this instrument, and it begins to be part of you. And so every day I'm sitting in that that little you know that moment in uh, Sherlock Holmes. You ever read Sherlock Holmes? When Sherlock Holmes is sitting in by the window there, and he's playing his violin, and he's composing himself. I used to love that. 
every day I'm in school, all day, you know, in trig, I'm in algebra, I'm in all these classes. And then I had band, and I had a band rehearsal period where I would sit by myself in this little band room surrounded by all these instruments up on racks, all by myself with my tuba, and in front of me is a rack of music. And I'm playing... That was exercise 32. And I began to grow to love this instrument and begin to feel that I could play it. And one big day came when Mr. Derrick's our band instructor came to me, put his hand on my shoulder and said, Gene, uh, have you ever thought of competing in the solo contest, the Indiana State solo contest against all the other tuba players of the state? It never occurred to me that this could happen. And then he gave me the sheet music playing, uh, gave me the sheet music, which was Caprice Vermois. Have you ever heard the tone Caprice Vermois? <laughs> and Neapolitan Nights. And he says, now I want you to work on both of these things. And I began to work on them. And I used to laugh, oh, I play this thing. And, and, and once in a while, the other secondary tuba men, the third-rate bass players would come in and they'd say, oh, boy, what a bass player. What a bass player. And I got so that I had this sense of power. You know, I'm blowing Caprice Manoir, and I'm playing Neapolitan Nights, and I'm really blowing. And I begin to get better and better and better. And Mr. Dirks is in there helping me, and everyone is kind of coaching me, and I'm taking laps around the track, and I'm taking deep breathing exercises. And I would bring my horn at night back home, and I would sit there in the front bedroom, and the neighborhood would hear the sound of Neapolitan Nights being played on a B-flat sousaphone, the four-valve, and it would float out over those Midwestern quiet evenings, and the people would come around and talk, gee, you know, your son's the musician, isn't he? And then it finally happened. That big week, we worked up more and more and more and more to that moment, and it was going to be on a Monday morning, and we traveled down to a little town called Plymouth, Indiana, where they were having the state championship, and I felt 20 feet high. I felt magnificent. And that morning, as as the, the band, the, the, the solo contest got underway, they started out with things like the saxophone. They, they, you, they, you see, the, the tuba and the sousaphone is always way down to the end of everything. And I would go in and I'd hear the trumpet players playing. Oh, there were a lot of good trumpet players, you know, but they're not my competition. And I'd go in and I'd hear the bassoon players play. And it was being done in an auditorium in this high school. And there were a thousand people all sitting there listening, and in the front row were the assembled judges. Big, famous musicians had come down there, the judges, and they all sat there in the front row. And as the afternoon wore on, we got closer and closer to the tuba section. And in the meantime, of course, I'm running around. I've got my mouthpiece in my mouth. I'm blowing it, you know. And once in a while, I go down in the basement of the school there, and I'd blow a few notes, and I'd take my good old sousaphone out. I'd tune it. I'm blowing a spit out of it, and I'm polishing this thing. And then I would blow a couple of phrases of Caprice Benoit. And I was, you know, that feeling of competition is like getting ready to run the mile. It's like getting ready to, to, to run at Madison Square Garden. And I was to be number two on the program. There was a kid ahead of me, a kid from Huntington, Indiana, a little short, skinny kid with big jug ears, 
with that kind of red Adam's apple look, you know. And he was wearing that green and white band uniform that sort of hung off of him like rags. And I looked like a Greek god waiting there. And so I'm, I'm standing in the wings with my tuba on my shoulder. And out of the other side comes little jug ears. He could hardly carry his tuba. He came out, he sat down on the chair, and he spread eagle. And I looked back at Snuffy Smith, who was who was my buddy at the time, a tuba player, and I says, oh, boy, watch this, watch this. And I could hear the sound of this kid's teeth hitting the mouthpiece, clink, clink, clink. And then he began to blow. And the instant I heard the first note, I knew. I had never heard such a tuba player in my life. This guy didn't triple-tongue. He quadruple-tongued. He didn't quadruple-tongue. He octatongued. This guy played variation on variation on variation. What do you think he was playing? Caprice Benoit. He was playing it better than the composer could have played it. I just watched this guy sickness coming up. It was coming up, 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 up. And then he was off. It was through. He was done. And I could hear that great roar of applause coming up out of the auditorium, and I was pushed out. I walked forward, sat down on the thing, and began to play. Well, you know, to this day, I have no idea whether I hit any notes or I hit all of them. All I know is that I sat out there numbly and played Neapolitan Nights Caprice Benoit, and then it was over. It was all over. And it seemed like instantly they were giving out the awards. This kid won all available cups. He won badges. He won buttons. In fact, the Yankees signed them. As far as I know, this kid was put into the Yankee farm system that night. And they just quietly came over and handed me my second place ribbon. They handed the kid behind me his third place ribbon. And another poor little fat guy, they handed him a fourth place ribbon and told us to go home which we did. And ever since that time, I have known that for every good thing you do, there is like 50,000 better things that somebody else back of the next wastebasket can do with his eyes shut. Oh, it's time for my favorite radio announcer. Dear lady, are you bored with the same old steak and spaghetti and chicken for dinner? Yes, Well, yes. Park Sausage Company in Baltimore, Maryland can tell you how to make splendid new main dishes. I'll write to them. But you mustn't cheat. Cheat? You mustn't buy ordinary sausage just because it costs ten cents less. Only Park's has the flavor and quality to make a heroic dinner. I won't cheat. And now, don't touch that dial, because I'm going to sing for you. Yes, yes. Bring home the sausage, be a hero. Yes, bring home the sausage, P A R K S. Sausage to win ya. Sausage that's braver. Up from Virginia. Park's famous flavor. Bring home more Park sausages, Mom. Up from Virginia? Well, you said to write to Baltimore. Uh, Park sausage is made from an old Virginia recipe of the Park's family. The plant is in Baltimore, Maryland. Oh. Oh, he answered me. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, there's uh, you can't get around the, so the soul of a tuba player. Speaking of souls, friends, have we told you about Happiness Restaurant? 
between 93rd and 94th on Broadway, one of the finest Chinese restaurants in the history of Western man and in the history, of course, of Eastern man. And next Wednesday, we are going to have a little party there at Happiness Restaurant. By the way, they're open seven days a week. Fantastic food. And if you're looking for a place over the weekend to eat, believe me, this is one to look into. Happiness. Just plain old happiness. Now, oh, by the way, we're going to have a party there between 5 and 7 next Wednesday night. And they're going to give you free hors d'oeuvres. And if you come down there and sit down, you know, have dinner with us and look at the scene and uh, contemplate the infinite and concern the lint in your navel, uh, there is no better place in the world to do it than happiness. Free hors d'oeuvres, life, the sound of twittering birds. And can you imagine a better name for a restaurant than just happiness? Uh, why don't you call them up right now and say the same to you? And many, many more of them. Happiness, a fantastic Chinese restaurant that really serves great food. Between 93rd and 94th, it's a great place to go this weekend if you're looking for something really unusual. Right there in Broadway. And we'll see you there next Wednesday night. Happiness. Oh, happiness. Thy name is sweet and sour asparagus. Oh, happiness. Happiness. Gene Shepard from This Day in History. What day is that? That's April 9th, 1965, to wrap up today's Mass Backwards. And before we leave, this sad note, put away the crayons, kids. Winky Dink creator, TV producer, created interactive TV show Dead at 81. The creator of Winky Dink and You, pioneering interactive TV show, has died. Louis Deke Hayward was 81. Family members said Hayward died last month in Los Angeles, and they held it from us for all this time. Well, at any rate, you may now uh, put your plastic uh, screen over your radio. Start drawing, because the wake-up call will be along very shortly here at WBAI New York. I'll be back Sunday night, 7.30, for the golden age of radio. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.